Welcome to Choose Wisely, the podcast where we deconstruct food and sustainability topics with nuance and primary sources. Today's episode features Kate Cavanaugh of Western Daughters Butcher Shop and the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. This is part two of my interview with Kate. On part one, we covered Kate's story, going from a long-term vegetarian from the age of five to eating her first pronghorn burger, which I love that, 20 years later, and eventually opening up a butcher shop with her husband, which is Western Daughters. Today, we get into the bigger, deeper, meatier questions that I've always wanted to ask a butcher. Things like, how has your work changed your relationship to food, to yourself? maybe even death? What kind of feelings arise doing this work and how do you frame them to yourself? How does it feel when people ask you or tell you, oh, I could never do what you do? That one, I get that one a lot and (laughs) Kate and I really dive into it. And we talk a lot about disembodiment in ourselves, in our food system, in our culture. This is one of those episodes that goes from kind of the nitty gritty to more high-level topics, and I just love that about Kate. We can go high-low, left-right, deep-shallow, and we could have talked for hours. <laughs> what has been hard and beautiful on the ranch this week? So as you're hearing this, I am out of office. I'm on a pack trip, and that's what's beautiful for me right now. I signed up for an all-women's pack trip, and I am taking time away from work. What is a pack trip? So packing is when you either use horses or mules to pack camping supplies and you go into the mountains. So you pack into the backcountry. We have a lot of backcountry in Montana. We have a lot of packing here. And I've never done that. So I signed up for this pack trip, but it's not just that. It's actually a skill building women's retreat to teach all the skills needed to do pack trips. And it's through an outfit called Wide Sky Adventures, which is near Livingston, Montana. Wide Sky is owned by Abby Nelson, and her mission with these retreats, it's so close to my heart. Um, There's so much overlap between that and our cowgirl camps. It's like skill building in a safe space with women, no pressure, no stress. It's it's community-centered. It's It's using skill building as a way to build inner resilience and grit and also get outside, connect with nature while you're doing it, unplug a little bit. So I'm just so excited and grateful to have the opportunity to do this. She runs all kinds of retreats. So there's ones that are just like one day, there's artist retreats, there's writing retreats, there's packing and and horsemanship retreats. So it's very much worth a look into. You just go to whiteskyadventures.com. She's got an email list. You can stay in touch. Um, You can also do like custom trips, horse retreats through them too. So you could like get a group and book your own type of retreat. I'm really grateful to Justin, my husband, for covering me at home so that I can do something like this. I've really learned the importance of, you know, since I host retreats myself, I need to be investing in myself and my own skills. And it's a treat for me to be on the other side of this. So yeah, I'm going to be sharing the trip on Instagram at Big Sky Caroline. So check it out for for content and a whole bunch of what we're learning about how to pack into the back country of Montana. What's been hard lately is that I've been doing some personal work around boundaries, having better boundaries. So a couple of years ago, I read Nedra Tawab's book, Find Boundaries, Find Peace, I believe it's called. Highly, highly recommend 
And since then, I've been kind of going on this journey of implementing boundaries. So I went from not having them at all, like they just did not exist for me. Such a people pleaser. I was such a pushover. I would say yes when I meant no. Like I just had, yeah, I had no boundaries. To now, I feel like I've been doing pretty well about just like, they exist now in my life. I'm not the best at boundaries, but they exist. But not too long ago, there was a situation that brought all that into doubt for me. I have this tendency to be like, I'm someone who dives in. I have a lot of enthusiasm. I'm a joiner. Like if there's something that I'm excited to do, like I'm in, you know, I'm signing up, I'm committed, I'm bringing snacks. Like if I have a new friend in my life, I'm all in. And I love being that way. It's brought actually so many good things to my life. I think it served me really well, like 95% of the time, but sometimes I'm a little too open. I'm a little too unboundaried and I can get bit. And that happened. I got bit. (laughs) And other people in my life told me, they're like, "Hmm, I think this situation is going to bite you. And I was like, no, I'm such an optimist. I'm so trusting. I can be a little gullible. I take everything at face value. Yeah. So I got bit this time. And so I'm doing some work around that and it's been a bummer and it's been kind of hard because yeah, I like that about myself. I like being open-hearted to the world, but I can see like that being its own type of red flag behavior. And so I'm I'm just learning to be a little bit more self-aware of my tendency to do that and to kind of be more boundaried in new situations and new relationships and really give myself more time and space to see things as they are rather than maybe what I want them to be. So that's what's going on. And yeah, I'm one of those people, and I think Brene Brown talks about this, like when you first start getting boundaries in your life, you're obsessed with boundaries and like you see them everywhere. And so I'm in that place where I'll be chatting with friends going through something and I'm like, oh, that's a boundary. That's not your work. That's someone else's work. You can put up a boundary. (laughs) Like I'm just constantly talking about them and seeing them everywhere. So apologies in advance, but yeah, that's what's been hard. That's what's going on with me. All right, here we go. I give you part two of my interview with Kate Kavanaugh. Choose Wisely is brought to you by my small business, Little Creek Lamb and Beef. The first Monday of every month, I pack and ship our beef subscription orders. These are customers who get a box every month or every two or three or four months. And we got the best customer review the other day, so I'm gonna read it to you. Brenda wrote me and she said, hi. I gifted the beef subscription to my husband for Christmas, and we look forward to every single meal we've made out of it. Honestly, these are the best burgers we have ever had, ever. I also love being able to watch the love and passion that goes into the food we are feeding our kid. And I told him the story of how it can all be traced back locally. My only wish is that we did this sooner. Thank you. That meant so much to me. We've been running our beef subscription for a couple years now, and I love custom packing each box. I feel like I get to know each family, who they're cooking for. I learn their favorite cuts, and we're swapping it up all the time, making sure they're trying new things every box. It's so fun. For a limited time, we're offering 10% off your first order over $100 with the code WISELY, all caps. That's WISELY, W-I-S-E-L-Y. Follow the link in the show notes to shop or visit littlecreekmontana.com. Okay, I want to jump ahead to some bigger questions. This is some of my favorite, favorite kind of juicy, meaty stuff to get into with you. I want juicy, meaty oh. stuff. 
<laughs> okay. So you and your husband also farm. Mm-hmm. And I would love to hear like about your farm, what you're raising, and also how, you know, usually we're very siloed in our industries. Like the butchers are over here doing the butchering. The farmers are over here raising the crops and, and ranchers are raising the animals. So you're doing a bit of each. How does being a butcher inform your farming? And how does being a farmer inform your butchery? So I have always said for many years that as a butcher, I have an incredible opportunity to see an animal's life from the inside out, Mm. that you get to see Mm. raising practices manifested in meat and fat. Mm -hmm. And you get to see landscapes show up in this meat and fat. You get Mm -hmm. to see the phytochemical richness of the grasses as they change throughout seasons. Uh, and change the color of the fat. And so a great Mm -hmm. example of this is out West, we don't have a lot of carotenoids in our grasses. So that's going to be a phytochemical, a secondary compound that we would normally associate with a thing like a carrot or an orange bell pepper. And we don't have a ton of them except for during actively growing grass season about April 15th to July 15th. And so when you get into butchered meat in late August, September, that's when you'll see a little bit more yellow in the fat, which is going to be both vitamin A and these carotenoids. But you also see that phytochemical richness in the texture of fat, what an animal has been Mm -hmm. eating. And so like with hogs, if you have have a diet that's high in omega-6s, you're going to see fat that melts a little bit more. Or if it's really high in omega-3s, that ratio is a little bit better. Then you're going to see a firmer fat. You're going to see all these incredible purples and mauves and densities that reflect that phytochemical richness. And as well as seeing work. I mean, you can Mm -hmm. see how much an animal has worked in the texture of their muscles and in some of those ligaments and tendons. And I think that this is a really beautiful opportunity to see how your food changes with its relationship to a landscape and its relationship to the seasons. And that always drove what I wanted to do with farming because I had had the gift of being able to see inside out as it Mm -hmm. were. Mm -hmm. And to know that there were practices that I wanted to play with. And so I wanted Mm -hmm. to play with some hogs that had a a different omega-3 to omega-6 ratio and, Mm -hmm. and some different rotational practices. And as a farmer, I think it drives you even more to want to use all of that animal. When you have midwifed something into this world (laughs) and are going to see it all the way through to you're going to kill it. You're going to kill it on the land it was born on. That blood Mm -hmm. is going to go back. I think that deepens, okay, I want to use every last piece of of this animal to honor that cycle of life. So beautifully said. And so we just got a bunch of beef back from the butcher. And I was like, oh my gosh, the yellow fat. So I really noticed because our last batch had been from April. And in Montana, that's still like dead of winter, basically. Yep. And we've really been in that growing season. I was like, oh my gosh, our customers who are beef subscribers, they'll see like our next batch is a little more yellow. And I was just excited to see that. Something occurred to me too that I wanted to mention. I try to kind of gently encourage customers to, when they're purchasing meat, to think about trying different cuts and not just sticking with like 
the ribeyes, the New Yorks, the pre, quote unquote premium, you know, mm-hmm. premium cuts. And we, we do these sampler boxes. So we have a seven pound sampler, a 14 pound sampler, and these are our subscription options. And the way we've designed them is as a representative ratio of the actual meat cuts that you would get back off the animal. Now it's, it's not always perfect because we do want to make sure that folks get enough of those, like the two premium, they do, we do two premium steaks in every box. So it's a little heavy on the premium steaks, but you know, you're going to get almost 50% ground beef off of an animal. And so for us, sustainability on the business front means if we're only, if people are only interested in cherry picking the top end, you know, and leaving all the ground, you know, keep the stew meat, keep the, keep the Mm -hmm. top round steak. Mm -hmm. It's not sustainable for me. I need to sell the whole animal. Correct. And yeah, it's a really important, it's a powerful thing for consumers to know. It is. And so industry standards are about 67% yield off of a cold weight carcass. And so once once that animal has been gutted and skinned, you're going to get about 67% of that back as meat. And usually about 50% of that is ground meat. Right. And, you know, what is representative of ribeyes, strips, or tenderloins, right? I mean, on a on an 800 pound steer, you are going to have tops and these are going to be some big tenderloins, eight Mm -hmm. pounds of tenderloin. And that would Mm -hmm. be, I mean, that's Mm -hmm. just top, but closer to six. And so there's your, your ratio and it's really low. And I think that one of the really cool things, and I think you'll appreciate this is that with any given muscle, you know, flavor is a component of a couple of different things. Flavor is a component of what the animal was eating. And so the forage Mm -hmm. that it was grazing on, which might shift a little bit seasonally, like we've talked about. Fat is a part of that because fat is Mm -hmm. a vehicle for flavor. But work is actually, I think, the most important part of flavor. So the more that a muscle works, the more flavorful it's going to be. Mm -hmm. And if you've heard the term eating high on the hog, this is a reference to cuts that aren't very well worked because they're in quadrupedal animals. And so the New York strip and the ribeye are part of the longismus dorsi, which is Mm -hmm. a muscle that runs the length of the spine on each side of the spine. Mm -hmm. And the tenderloin is the psoas, uh, which is interior to the spine. And these just aren't used very much because as quadrupedal animals, you're not bending at the waist. And so they are both more tender because work also creates toughness, but Mm -hmm. they are a little bit less flavorful. And so I love to remind people that if you are looking for that unctuous, rich, velvety depth mm-hmm. of flavor, that is coming in your shanks. shanks. In your shanks, shanks forever. <laughs> Team shanks. <laughs> in your brisket, in chuck eye, in neck meat, and mm-hmm. in stew meat and grind, which is yep. essentially, you know, some of these tougher cuts that yeah. that need to be broken down either mechanically, as in the case of grind, or through a long braising process like we would Mm -hmm. do with shanks or with stew meat. Mm -hmm. And so there is more flavor to be found outside of these classic cuts. And I also love ground meat. Like we eat more. We actually just pulled some things out of the freezer to grind because we ran out of (laughs) ground meat. I just love it so much. I eat it every day. I am obsessed with shanks. Obsessed. I feel like I haven't I have a new obsession, I would say like quarterly for a while. It was the flat iron. I really love a flat mm, iron. Like I okay. want texture. I, have a, I love chew. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, tell me. Flat tell iron. Me. 
whole flat iron. Um, if you take a whole flat iron, so so the flat iron is going to be, and I always forget if it's the infra or the supraspinatus, mm-hmm. but it has this huge tendon that runs the mm-hmm. length of it. Mm-hmm. And so a couple of things can happen. You can do this sort of chicken fried steak where you cut across the tendon um, and it's in there, or you can skin that tendon away. It's called denuding it. Mm. And you have the second most tender muscle in a steer's body uh, next to the tenderloin and this beautiful lacy fat. But the third thing that nobody does is that you can take the whole flat iron and you can salt it and you can roast it in the oven for eight hours. And that tendon turns into the most unctuous, filling, rich jelly <gasps> that you have ever had in your life. Oh my gosh. Oh my God, I'm starving. One of the things that happened to me when I started raising and, and eating my own meat is I went from someone who like trimmed the fat off, you know, no fat. And now I'm like, give me the fat. Like I give need me it. the fat. I, I want to <laughs> render it all. Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I want to save mm-hmm. the fat and then fry that in more fat. Like um, <laughs> I want your next obsession to be flap meat, which I also call the vet. Talk uh, to me about I- flap meat. So flat meat hangs down from what we consider the little tail of the New York strip, um, okay. kind of kind of interior to the flank. Mm-hmm. And it's going to have that longer grain that we would associate mm-hmm. with a flank or a skirt mm-hmm. steak. But it's a little bit more woven together in a crisscross and it's a little bit thicker. It kind of it kind of looks like this beautiful necklace when you pull it off the animal, mm-hmm. and it is texturally magical. Is super this like flavorful? The hanger steak or flap steak is the vet separate? Similar than hanger. to hanger, similar okay. to hanger, but but still different because that hanger okay. is really exceptional because of the way it hangs between kidneys, behind liver, so it kind of collects okay. some of that flavor, and it's the only thing in the animal's body where there's only one. Everything else, there's two. There's two. Um, and, that's and it's right. symmetrical. But the the hanger steak, there's only there's only one. Yeah, I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear how few of different cuts come off of each animal. You know, you get two flank steaks if you leave them intact. Yes. You get yeah. So it, it that may be you know if you're like why is that always sold out? You know, it's like they always have grind, but that's they have, you know that's why we don't, we don't get a lot. Like yeah, um, and. One pound of hanger steak per 800 pound animal. Right, and right. so I I love to pick on chefs that put that mm-hmm. on a menu. Oh, you better be serving so much <laughs> burger. So much burger. Yeah, and this is why, yes. like, people ask why we're not in doing um, partnering with restaurants, and I totally would in the future. But the issue that we've had is number one, they can't afford our ground. My break even mm-hmm. on ground is really high. Um, mm-hmm. They can get it from the store for a few bucks less a pound. So they're going to do that. And I don't yep. blame them. Their margins are tight too. But oh, also... They're not as tight. Not as not as tight as mine. Yeah. Um, they're, not but, as tight. they're not as tight. <laughs> <laughs> but I get it. But I get it. And also, like, I need them to buy from me whole animals. Or at least, yes. like, uh, make a good stab at it. I don't cherry pick my rack of lamb. I can't get by, you know, I sell like bundles where racks of lamb are in there with the leg of lamb, with the shoulder chops, with the stew meat. It's like, this is a bundle. And I appreciate my customers so much who understand, like they're going to get those premium cuts, but I'm, I'm going to need you to, you're going to have to have some stew meat. I need you to mm-hmm. like, this is mm-hmm. part of it. Mm-hmm. So this is why we don't work with restaurants. And chefs are ambassadors to customers' palates. This is where this is where people experience oh these cuts and go home yeah. and say, "Gosh, I 
I want to make this at home. Yeah. And so if our ambassadors to customers' palettes are only looking for rack of lamb and aren't touching on how delicious shanks and braised legs are or Mm. a lamb shoulder, Mm -hmm. then we're truly missing out. And and Mm -hmm. I sometimes have a bone to pick with chefs and Mm -hmm. it is that, that -hmm. they could be better supporters of farmers and ranchers by harnessing this beautiful creativity that they have in their kitchens to give people new cuts that they want to try at home. My gosh, thank you for for that framing. And I know there's so many chefs who are out there. I mean, the ones at Old Salt, for example, being those ambassadors. And I've never had goat in my life. And I had goat for the first time. And it was my favorite meat of the whole weekend. Yeah. Well, I mean, I raise goat. So I'm a goat girl now. I'm <laughs> Oh, I'm a goat girl. I'm a goat, I'm I'm a goat girl I'm for in. life. I'm a goat girl for life. Just give me all the goat. <laughs> okay. So I want to go back to um, this sense of how our culture has this anxiety around death and anxiety around eating meat. I'm going to do a podcast episode about this. I want to call it the meat sweats. <laughs> <laughs> like okay, unpacking really that, that anxiety. I think there's so many reasons that we have it, but can you share how your personal feelings around death and dying have have been informed by your work as a butcher? You know, it's so funny. I I was very afraid of death as a child. There was yeah. a lot of a lot of death around me and I was I was terrified of it. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to look at it. Um I didn't want to think about it. And I've talked about this a lot and I I get this emotion that I refer to as everything is dying. Um, mm-hmm. And now that I say it, I actually haven't had it in a while. But when aspects of my life are really out of control, I'll get this this sort of uh, very haunting fear that everything is on the brink of death, right? Mm-hmm. The people I love, a plant in my office, my pets, I, uh, just everything and anything, right? Yeah. And I think that death is this point that we all feel is the ultimate lack of control. And, and so when things feel out of control, this, this, it's funny that actually that hasn't come up for me in a really long time, which is interesting. Um, But we feel this lack of control. And I think it's because we, we don't see it. Right. And we fear what we don't know. And there Mm -hmm. is a component of death that we can never know that is unknowable. Mm -hmm. Right. What that Mm -hmm. transition truly is. Mm -hmm. But like we talked about earlier, we just don't see the death in our food system. We don't see death of our loved ones. And so it's a tough thing to hold. And I also think it's an important thing to hold. It connects us back into that life cycle, right? Because death is this transition that provides fertility for the rest of life. When we think about, you know, a fox that dies in the forest and is scavenged by some coyotes for meat, but then the nitrogen in its blood goes back to the soil, the phosphorus in its bones go back into the Mm -hmm. soil, the potassium in its tissues become the NPK that we are so familiar with as synthetic Mm -hmm. fertilizer. Mm -hmm. But then all this life, right? All of the the micro in that fox's body that outnumber its own cells about 10 to 1, 
begin to consume the fox and begin mm-hmm. to nourish the soil and to become part of that connectivity. And if you come back in a year in that forest, that spot where the fox died is going to have more life, more fecundity. Mm-hmm. And so if we disconnect from this incredibly important piece of the life cycle, we are disconnecting from our most fertile ground. And I think mm-hmm. that it is fertile ground for for our joy, for our grief, which we also have to come home to, mm-hmm. and for all those emotions that don't have names that happen in between, that this mm-hmm. is a big part of what lets us know that we're real. Oh my gosh. And my journey has been so similar with death. I was obsessed with it as a kid. I wasn't afraid of it. I was like fascinated by it. Oh. I was that kid that was like, let me save this horse skull and like make uh-huh. it into art. <laughs> uh, let me watch the scene where Bambi's mother gets shot oh, over sh- and over and over Yay. again until my Yay. mom takes the tape away. Oh my God. <laughs> I was like, I was always attracted to like very old I loved old stories I wanted to like hear about Mm -hmm. the cavemen you know like I was just kind of oriented that way and so I my journey has been like from one that was somebody who was scared of death to somebody who for a long time was like okay I'm at peace with death I'm I'm ambivalent to it at least I'm like I've had this fragile peace with the idea of dying and I might have just taken my first little step into somebody who's actually like appreciative of it and grateful to it. Mm. I had a reframe um, recently where it's like, it's not just this thing that's going to happen to us that we have to endure. It's actually like a Mm. gift. We actually must die so that things can move forward and so that Mm -hmm. others can live and that Mm. the past can be like cut away. And Mm. It's in some way, it's like it truly, our life would be so drained of color if it, if we didn't have death. And, and it's also, it's yes. the other half. It's like birth and death. Even the processes of dying are these inverse, you know, the inverse yeah. process of being born. Like how interesting that we have these bookends to our life. I just have been like spending a lot of time on hospice TikTok. Have you been... <laughs> No, I didn't know that a hospice TikTok was a thing. Fascinating. Hospice nurses who get like really candid about their work and what dying looks like and the patterns that they see. And part of what they're doing is just demystifying. Yeah. And a lot of them say like, you die as you live. And it can be this, it's like a little bit scary, but it could be beautiful. It's like, they say that people who have lived with love and depth and grace and gratitude die often, not always, but like often die wonderfully. Mm. And people that really struggle in their lifetime to, you know, picture these people who like Mm. fight with life, they can have these more like arduous deaths. And that's been fascinating to me. Oh, I know. know, I did it. I did a podcast with a woman who's been a home funeral arranger for the last mm-hmm. 40 years and and helps guide people through the process of caring for their dead at home mm-hmm. if they so choose, which I think mm-hmm. is something that we don't even know as an option. Uh, a lot of people don't even think is legal, but it is. Mm-hmm. And so I'm fascinated by the hospice TikTok because mm-hmm. I think that, and I do want to say this, there is a part of me that is still very much afraid of death. And I think that that yeah. is normal, right? And doing this work for all this time, it has not changed that. And I think mm-hmm. it is that sense of the inevitability of death that 
drives us to mm-hmm. live bigger, to to dream wilder, to love deeper, because there is this finitude to mm-hmm. our lifespans. And, and so it's a reminder of the deepening of what it is to be here right now. And mm-hmm. I think it is, right? And I think that too, right? Grief, like we cannot grieve something that we did not love. And to love is one of the most beautiful things. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, there's a William Blake poem that you know, those two things are woven together like silk and twine. Mm-hmm. We, mm-hmm. we need them together. And there's, there's this, it's so many similar things about harvesting animals to thinking about death and death in our own lives. And yet it's also very different. And in some ways, the deaths on the farm that have been hardest for me are the elderly sheep, are the very, the youngest that might have a health problem or a birth defect or something where like you have to put them down and they're suffering. Yes. Those are the ones that I I have a really hard time with, but also, you know, that moment of, of taking a life is so is different than like witnessing somebody pass on their own. And one of the things that gets my hackles up is when people tell me, well, I could never do what you do. Do people tell you that? All the time. And how does that land for you? I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me why. Yeah, tell me why. You sent me this question and I just thought it was one of the most incredible questions that I have never been asked. Hmm. And I loved that, that you brought it up because I hadn't even thought about it as much. And I think that there is this idea when people say I could never do what you do, that there is this kind of unspoken implication that sometimes, sometimes it's that I'm a bit of a monster, right? That that you could, that you could kill something that, uh, that there is something wrong with me, that there is this sort of monstrous thing to being able to take a life that Mm -hmm. is very negative. And at the same time, I think that there's deep disconnection for these people with, again, we are one of 44,000 generations of hunters in modern Homo sapiens. Mm-hmm. This has been the way that we have fed ourselves for millennia, for, mm-hmm. <laughs> for so long. And there is an aspect of this that is in all of us, that mm-hmm. is innate to our omnivory. And yes. the idea that we are meat eaters is is mm-hmm. also to kill and mm-hmm. to be a part of the ecosystem in that killing. So I think it also kind of makes me feel sad that we are so disconnected from our yeah. food to imagine that this is this, this Herculean monstrous effort mm-hmm. that it must mm-hmm. take to mm-hmm. take a life. So well said. And I think, you know, something that just occurred to me now is actually one of my favorite phrases is it's by Joseph Campbell. Um, the cave you feared to enter holds the treasure that you seek. Mm, and I mm-hmm. think there's a possibility that the folks that are most inclined to ask that question may be the most curious and actually the ones that mm-hmm. might have the most desire to try. Um, they want to watch Bambi's mom die over and over again. It's not like. <laughs> I'll be curious if anybody else had a fixation with that scene, they're going to have to tell me about it. This is so funny. 
because because of course in some ways it's like not only does it feel a little dehumanizing to be told that like I could never do what you do because I'm sensitive and feeling and you're a (laughs) you're a robot Mm -hmm. apparently Mm -hmm. but it's also in some ways like dehumanizing to them because I'm like do you think you're fundamentally different than people that lived a hundred years ago do you think a thousand like do you think you couldn't do this of course you could you would have had to you mm-hmm. would have, like, you would have at the very least been involved in the processing and you would have been so dang grateful to put that first bite in your mouth. You could have had Absolutely. blood on your hands and taken the first bite, like, not to be crass about it, but that's the feeling. It's like, of course you could have. And actually, when people say I could never, it like almost hurts me to hear that from them because I'm like, yeah. you don't know within you, I guess, that that you really could. And that also, that this isn't this horrifying, scary thing. Like I've held space for people through their first butchery. And I'd be very interested to hear your experience doing that. But I can say that no one has walked away being like, that was what I thought it was going to (laughs) be. Yeah. You know, I've, I've done a lot of kills with groups of people over the years. And one of the things I always say at the outset is I like to make space for people to feel whatever comes up. Mm-hmm. And I and and I like to make this space for myself too because there are a whole spectrum of emotions that get roused when you see mm-hmm. something die, when you see something mm-hmm. killed. And and sometimes there aren't emotions and I like to make space for that too. Like you might feel intense grief, you might feel some numbness. There there is yeah. no right, there is no wrong. Whatever you feel, just try to be present with it. Try to breathe through it uh, and and stay connected to it if you can because I think that it it brings up a lot of different things for us at different times in our lives too and so you you might have gone to a couple of on-farm slaughters and then all of a sudden you go to one and have a completely different emotional experience mm-hmm. based mm-hmm. on what's happening in your life or what's present for you in that moment and I think that's true just for yourself as somebody who is killing animals too that mm-hmm. that it can be different every every season every time you go out there to to process a chicken to kill a goat mm-hmm. and one of the things that I'm trying to allow for more is that when I feel that an animal has truly like lived this wonderful life, done at least a whole round of the seasons, is mature, is strong, has grazed, has socialized. Like I have, I will tell you zero feelings, uh, negative feelings loading those animals, ram, you know, ram lambs, steers into the trailer and taking them to harvest. And the times that like, I think, I think it's important to say that like the finishing is an art, like getting an animal to that right stage of finishing is an art. And I'm very much learning that art still. And sometimes I feel like Mm. I've held animals too long. Sometimes I feel like I've sent Hmm. them a little too soon. When I like, sometimes when I've had feelings, it's like, I didn't really like butchering lambs at six months. Like it felt a little young Mm. to me and it's a very common- Yeah. First of all, the cuts are small. 
And they all, they haven't done like the full seasons, even though, and I would say like, they're sexually mature. My sheep are sexually mature at six months. They're big. They're already fighting. They're already trying to mate with their mom. Like they're a menace yeah, at that laughing. age. Like yeah. if you want it, like, and we, if I have one that's like 115 pounds at six months, like, and it's a nightmare on the farm, like I will send it. I'm not afraid to do that. But ultimately like where I've really hit a stride, I feel like mm-hmm. is I love 12 month old, you know, lamb that's like between mm-hmm. 10 and 14 months old. That's like really That's what done. we do at the butcher shop. Yeah. It just feels right to me. Like life cycle wise. Um, the whole thing just feels really good. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. Um, quick story. I had a message the other day from one of my former cowgirl and shepherd camp attendees. And she's been a vegetarian for 20 years and she texted me and she said, I'm having, you know, my partner surprise me with a box of your lamb and I'm going to eat meat for the first time tonight. And I channeled you because I think there's this pressure in a situation like that to either she takes that first bite and she's horrified or she takes that first bite and she's like, this is the best thing I ever had in my life. You know, and so I just said to her, I was like, I'm so happy for you. And I just want you to like, whatever you feel is right you know what, if you cook it and you're like, I'm not ready yet, you can give that to your partner and, and you know, he's a meat eater. He'll happily eat it. Like just give yourself space to like feel whatever comes up. Maybe you feel a lot. And this, you gave me this gift too, where you're like, maybe you feel nothing. Maybe you feel completely fine. Like it's a no thing. And like, if that's the case, welcome that too. Yeah. Without guilt, without shame, without guilt. Yep. We yep. could be so much more gentle with ourselves in mm-hmm. in in all things. Mm-hmm. Really. Sometimes it'll hit me like I'm so jazzed on eating meat. I'm so jazzed on butchering animals and I will still sometimes be like, "Ooh, like I'm cooking something and it just hits me a certain way and I'm like, "Oh, I'm feeling a little grief all around yeah. this animal's life." Like I'm fe- yeah. I'm so aware of the aliveness, the the vibrant life that this was so recently. Yeah. It really bringing it up. It's close. Like Mm -hmm. it's close to the veil. I Mm -hmm. had this experience last fall where a goat that I was going to keep as a companion Mm -hmm. um, died in a very unexpected and tragic farm accident Mm -hmm. that we never could have anticipated or really prevented. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a really close relationship with this goat. His name was Texas. He had this little white spot, the shape of Texas on his side. Um, Texas three socks. And, <sighs> you know, we sat there and we decided that we were going to eat him instead of burying him. Wow. And, and it was one of the most intimate experiences I think I've had in my life. I think food is intimate, you know, and I talk about this a lot, right? Like we, we put food inside of our bodies Mm -hmm. three times, you know, two, three times a day. And those particles that make up that animal that were once grass, that were once rocks inside the soil and microorganisms and all these different things cross a one cell wall thick barrier and become us. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure there's a more intimate (laughs) act than eating. Uh And I think because of that, we have all of these different and and very intense emotions around mm-hmm. eating mm-hmm. so many of which we've discussed and and I think that's part of it and the, and this act of of eating texas was really intimate and I only pull out texas for special oh. occasions 
Oh my gosh. That really, that makes me feel, you know, and I have a few sheep like that where I'm like, I don't know what I would do. I mean, it's just like, there's a real camaraderie and, and people will also like, not people, but at large, but like activists and sort of people anti to the work that I do will, will say like, how can you say you love these animals? Mm. And then you butcher mm-hmm. them. And and I don't know that I have a great answer for that, except that I know that I do. It's like, I don't, I can't justify, yeah. I can't tell you exactly why, but I just know that I love these animals and that I also butcher them. Yeah. And there's a camaraderie, there's a companionship, there's a um, mutual, it's funny, because I do think this is somewhat of a one-way relationship, like this is me with them. Some of them, some of them like enjoy my company, but to me, like if I'm doing a good job raising animals in a way so that they are fairly living a natural life, like they're not really pets, they shouldn't think of me. I'm not what, no, you know, I don't supply food, I just open a gate and food's there. Like, mm-hmm. so I, I do think it's a somewhat one-sided relationship. Yes. Yes. All I can think about is this, this is a little off topic, but I'm going to go there. Is this uh there's a comic about horses and it's a girl and she's <laughs> hugging the horse and she's like, I love you. I'm going to devote my entire life to you. You're amazing. You're the best thing that's ever happened to me. And the horse is like, do you have a cookie? <laughs> This is my like, horse. My yeah, horse. Yeah. Feels neutral at, at best. Neutral at best or about me. It's like, you know, I finally, so I just bought a second horse and she like is really cuddly. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Like I just, I've had these like ambivalent horses for so long. <laughs> But you expect this ambivalence from something that doesn't depend on you. And yes. and I think it's good. However, when you work so closely with animals, personalities come up and mm-hmm. relationships are formed and mm-hmm. love, whether it's one way or whether it's cupboard love in the other direction, <laughs> does does happen. Or, I mean, mm-hmm. if you have milking animals, I have a goat that oh, I milk. I have a very yeah. intimate relationship with, her name is Tinny. Uh, oh. with Tenny because we, yeah. we, we interact pretty intimately every day. And You're so, yeah, that is a very different, I've milked a few animals this spring and I really, I felt such a gratitude and reverence for those ewes that were, you know, yes. providing milk. I just loved it. And I, I love that time with them. It was so nice. And Oh yeah. Oxytocin is flowing on their end just by the natural space of what it is to lactate. Mm -hmm. Right. And Mm -hmm. I think oxytocin flows on your end. And I know that afterwards, Tenny loves to, uh, she does this thing where she kind of nuzzles my neck and kind of lips at my neck. And and there's, there's this really, uh, it's intimate, but Mm -hmm. to go back to something that you said, because I think this is really important. I also cannot describe why I can love my animals and kill them. Like I, mm-hmm. I don't know how to bridge that gap for people mm-hmm. other than it, it just is. Mm-hmm. I think of agriculture as sort of the level below what our bodies and our brains are built to do. It's like the mm-hmm. best thing, except for the thing we're actually built for, <laughs> which is hunting, which is hunting. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And we wouldn't like the cognitive dissonance that I think a lot of people feel around like loving animal and killing it is reasonable because our brains aren't built really to do that except for the last like 10,000 years. This is pretty new. Very Um, new. So I do feel like the connection that I feel with nature doing the work that I do is all to me. I'm like, this is, I'm at best imitating 
mm-hmm. <laughs> like yes. something yes. bigger. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's a mimicry of something. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I also think I think back to Nicolette Nyman does a really good job in the latest edition of Defending Beef of talking about this sort of contract that we have with domesticated mm. animals mm. that mm. I think is yes. really beautiful, right? Because we are, we are hunters first and foremost. And yeah. what we have done with agriculture is many things, a, an entire mm. different podcast, <laughs> but um, yeah. uh, uh, definitely not hunting. And I think yeah. that there is this contract that we have where we have entered into a reciprocal relationship yes. where we are offering them safety, consistency mm-hmm. in, in food sources mm-hmm. and care. Yeah. And in return, there is meat and wool. Yeah. And, and not for all of them, only some of them. Yeah. Some of them are yeah. always going to be breeding animals. Did you read exactly. that paper? This is just a theory. I don't I don't know how this will land with people. I don't know how I feel about it, but there's a theory out there that animals like participated in their own domestication. That they basically like mm-hmm. did the math. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think I think that that argument gets really obvious and clear for something like a dog. And I <laughs> yes. think it's it's a lot murkier when we get into something like a sheep or well, yeah. or you could also make the argument that chickens, I mean, in mm-hmm. domestication have been prolific. They have yes. they have covered the entire globe. Mm-hmm. And so you could make this other argument, you know, that they like in terms of species They're like success, winning, yeah. <laughs> wildly successful. <laughs> yeah. Lots of yeah. different arguments. Not sure how I feel about any of them. And those. also, you know, it's like the confinement era is so recent too. Like if there was any yes. kind of math they were doing, I doubt they saw that one coming. The math would have been different. <laughs> but you know, when you're Very talking about like math. pastorally raising a sheep yeah. flock, that's, I mean, dang, that's a pretty good life. You know, that's a you have trouble life. during yeah. birth and someone comes and pulls that lamb out. Like, heck yeah. yeah. Pigs, you get thrown scraps and all these yeah. delicious things. You don't have to go looking for them yourselves, especially in winter. Right. I mean, <laughs> exactly. Especially in winter. That's a pretty good, that's a pretty good deal. Like you get yeah. a heel of bread and I don't know, you know, some, some, some leftover rhymes. stew. Yeah. <laughs> Yum. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I try to like, I just try to see my relationship with my sheep block as them living as close to this idealized in my mind, I'm sure, I, you know. I call it as close to their wild progenitor as possible. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. What is that yeah. wild progenitor? How would it have lived? What would it have eaten? And how can yeah. I provide a life that is very close to that? Yeah. Without the predators, <laughs> without the just getting eaten and slowly. Yeah. One of the yeah. things that like, so we didn't used to uh, castrate or band our ram lambs. We would butcher them under a year and a half old that it does not taint the meat at all. And I'm like, I like this because it's providing that thing in me that I'm like, I really want to give them as close to a natural. Mm-hmm life as mm-hmm. possible. We ran into a couple of problems. Um, the, so in the wild, the young males would be booted from a ruminant flock. They would be kicked out and they would have to go forage and fight. And they'd be, the weak ones would be picked off by predators. And then the strong ones would eventually come back and challenge like the main, you know, hurt flock sire and either lose or win, either be, I guess, killed or really mm-hmm. maimed. Mm-hmm. Or kill just or like a stag, the other just like a deer just like stag. A stag. Mm-hmm. And only a few of them, you know, so most of them would be picked off 
and feed the other predators and only a few would ever get to breed. So we always would separate those young males in the fall so that they didn't do any breeding they're not supposed to do. And also for the socialization of the flock, like they become these aggressive, like mm-hmm. you can just imagine these, you know, hormonal. They got a lot of hormones. Know, yeah. They got a lot of hormones. Just, hormones are tough. Hormones, they're having a lot of feelings they're in the tough. fall. They're tough. And, and preventing, well, yeah, with the goats, preventing sex from happening with teenagers, very <laughs> difficult. Very exactly. <laughs> Get separate them. But one of the problems that we had this winter is our flock is getting so big that our like bachelor group of ram lambs became so violent to each other. They oh. killed one of them. They oh. gave like we had to put him down because they gave him seizures and like head trauma. Yeah. As they're sorting out their pecking order, like this is not a pretty process, and they do become a little dangerous to me. So when I'm out mm-hmm. there. I have a few of them take a run at me and I never turn my back on them. But when there's, you know, there used to be 20. Now it's like there's 50, 75, 100. So we are, we castrated for the first time this year and they're all lambs. So I haven't seen them grow out and see, but it'll be very interesting to see like how the dynamic changes in the flock. I'm, I'm curious to revisit this with you next year. We, we banned our male goats just because it's too hard for us to separate everything. And so that, but we banned them a little bit later to give them a little run at at having some testosterone. And when they're getting pretty frisky, that's when we start to ban them. (laughs) Okay. So we're going to circle back. I'm going to take you in a totally different direction, but I think this one's interesting. I'm very fascinated in particular by women who go into butchery and women who get into like ranching the way that I do, where you're participating in the harvesting of your animals. And I think some of the sort of the hate that those type of people get on the internet may come from this Mm -hmm. idea that like, Oh, it's fine when men do it. Like you're supposed to be nurturing the animals. Like Mm -hmm. how can a woman Mm -hmm. do these things? So I'm curious how you think womanhood, femininity has informed your work, if at all, maybe not. Um, I'm just curious how that lands. Two different things, and they're kind of in opposition to one another. I actually think that I ended up here in many ways, and not entirely, because I had pushed feminine work away because I really, mm. I had really devalued anything that was feminine. Mm-hmm. Um, I know with that we talked about Maureen Murdoch's The Heroine's Journey when you came on my mm-hmm. podcast, but this was a big turning point for me because what I had seen at home with, with my mother, I, you know, and I associated her with being the feminine being in my life, I wanted to be the polar opposite of her. And so I embraced anything that I saw as the more masculine way of being. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I think in that, and I, and I was always that way. Like I'm a huge tomboy. I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I wore boys clothes as a kid and I played with hot wheels and, mm-hmm. I, you know, and I loved bugs and, and stuff that a lot of girls considered gross. And I was, that was always me. And so I think that there was sort of a, a natural inclination towards more male dominated mm-hmm, industries. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was also always just kind of Kate with one of the guys, you know, I was just one of the guys. Yeah. Um, and I think that's and- so interesting not to interrupt you, but like I too went on a journey of like, I really valued male validation of like, yes, if also I that. Enter, right. Like if I can break into a male field and get them to respect me, oh, that yeah. meant more than the respect of my female peers. 
Oh, not anymore. So much but... more satisfying. No, not anymore. Not anymore. Not yeah, anymore. so much more satisfying. And I think that's yeah. great. Like it's mommy issues. It's daddy issues. It's both yeah. of them. <laughs> it's both of them at the same time. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. And because I felt the same way. And then there was a real turning point, and I think that has continued into present day of wanting to come more from that space of. Sometimes I think women are better at seeing a longer game. Mm-hmm. I think they are better at considering process at times, like every mm-hmm. step of the process and being able to see that, being able to lift that veil. Mm-hmm. I actually think in many ways, because we are able to create life, that our connection between life and death, between those two worlds mm-hmm. is a little bit thinner and that there can be something really beautiful that happens when we take agency in those places. Mm-hmm. And I think that there can be like a a nurturing, a seeing of all of these different relationships and connections. And I I, I don't necessarily think that this is gendered, but I do think there is a tendency one way or the other. And, Mm -hmm. you know, now in my life, I value my female friendships and Mm -hmm. the validation of my female peers. Mm -hmm. So much of the reason that I made the trip to Old Salt, which was a pretty big trip for me, was to be with all of these women that I so deeply admire and am in awe of and and to be in person with you, with Erica, with Jillian. Um, And so I think that there's been this sort of big return for me back into how I can actually connect with that piece of myself, however it's manifested. And to let that all too be, be a part of my work. Oh, so well said. I'm, you know, and we talked about this on your podcast, like I've been on such a similar journey and I, I've joked that like, I think I was around 25 and I suddenly woke up and did like an audit on what I was reading and listening to. And I realized that I wasn't even listening to female artists. And I was one. I was a singer songwriter myself. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like 5% of what I was consuming. And this is so nuts. When I would be in the bookstore, I would skip. I think maybe I already told you this. Like I would skip books by women. I was looking for the meaty literature. I was like, I want yeah. the, yeah. the yep. What do I think was in those books that I didn't, I couldn't learn from? It's, it's unfathomable. So like I wake up to this realization and I was like, you know what, Caroline, why don't you just try it? Why don't you buy like one book by a woman and just like see if it's good. And from, can you imagine from that moment, it is rare that to this day that I will pick up a book by a man. And I always joke. I'm like, I gave mm-hmm. men the first 25 years of my life. Like I'm going to mm-hmm. do the next 25. Mm-hmm. I just want to learn from women. And when I'm women. 50, We'll just see. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> I'll start we'll listening see to men again. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I actually, and I, you know, what's described in Maureen Murdoch's The Heroine's Journey is this isn't an uncommon path that we often yeah. reject the feminine yeah. for a variety of different reasons and to prove yeah. ourselves, especially in the paradigm that we're given with culture. Like mm-hmm. when you're, when you're hungry to prove yourself and to, to be approved of in a, in a male dominated culture, Uh, that Mm -hmm. leads you down some of these paths and then to come home to that like to come home to all the amazing women that are out there writing and podcasting and butchering and tanning and you know and 
And I don't mean to make this such a binary conversation, but I was raised yeah. in such a binary world. And so I want to be learning from everyone of all genders and non-binary folks. Like they, there's Absolutely. things to learn from everyone, but I was raised in a world that just, and it's so different now, even just 32 years later, but like that really held up men's work as like yes. the work. And yes. so in some ways it's like, I got to get acquainted with my own gender before I <laughs> can go anywhere else. Like I didn't even, yeah. I feel like there was knowledge of my own self that was robbed for me. Again, we could go down this, this is a whole other podcast, but yep. <sighs> like it's been so beautiful to come back to um, a lot of, a lot of what I'm, what I'm, I feel so at home in some of, some of the books and the music that I've been reading because it's my own experience that I didn't even mm. know was, was <laughs> universal. Like, yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Okay. I want to get a little bit into disembodiment. Mm. This is such a big word for me right now. And I love hearing you talk about this. You and I have talked a lot about like how I've been do trying to do the work of like coming back to my body, coming back to myself, and that you feel there's this connection to sort of a lot of folks feeling disembodied and out of their bodies, yeah. alienated from their bodies, and the way that our food system is disembodied, you know? So, you know, the meat is is saran wrapped and and the broccoli, the leaves are peeled away and the whole, I'm like, why are we saran wrapping the broccoli? But, but can, you, can you talk about that? Yeah, I think that a lot of us are experiencing a feeling of not being in our bodies, of being disembodied, mm -hmm. of having troubles grounding in our bodies. And I, I think it's no wonder. I, I think that we live in a space where we have this built world that is so antithetical to the world that our bodies evolved in, that we don't quite mm -hmm. know how to root in. And I think a lot about how you know, the way that we understand ourselves, our bodies is by the relationship that we have with everything, everybody in our environment, which mm -hmm. includes our food. And if all of that feels sort of foreign on a really deep visceral level, then there's going to be this level of disembodiment. And I think we see this mirrored in every part of the food system. You go to the grocery store and things are hermetically sealed. And, you know, somebody like Daniel mm -hmm. Vitalis will say something like everything that you see at the grocery store is body parts, right? It's uh -huh, the, uh -huh. they're body parts of plants, they're body parts of animals, even if they're unrecognizable, if they've been ultra processed into a cracker, at some point yes. these existed as body parts, but they are now completely disembodied from mm -hmm. anything recognizable as, as a part of, you know, this, this world that we've been a part of forever. And I'm always mm -hmm. reticent to say the natural world because I think it sets it outside of us. Yes, yes, yes. Um, we are the natural world. Really, yeah. We are the natural world. And so this is really mm -hmm. important. However, I think our language is limited here. And, yeah. and I, I think a lot about this, that, you know, when agriculture comes in, all of a sudden we have this inside. And that means that the rest of everything is an outside. Yes. And I think that yes. this... Yes. <laughs> this disconnection becomes deeper uh -huh. through the scientific revolution and this the separation of of mind and matter that Descartes has and then throughout the industrial revolution and and into modern day but at the same time I'm really careful about this but I think that 
we don't see where everything comes from. We don't see process, right? We don't yeah. see what it takes to grow a carrot, what it takes to raise a sheep, what it takes to process or to kill a goat mm -hmm. or to cut it up and turn it into the ribeye and the strip steak that you eat at the grocery store. And I think that by severing ourselves from process, and it's not just this process, and this is something that I've really been thinking about lately is that we don't see the process of what it means to take, you know, cobalt and lithium and put them in an electric car battery. Mm -hmm. We don't understand mm -hmm. the process. Um, James just gave me this book, Orwell's Roses, and she talks about the process of growing roses for grocery stores in the United States, mm -hmm. right? There are all mm -hmm. these different industries, all these different sort of secret dark corners of process that we don't see. And so that also contributes to this disembodiment that it we experience. Does. Like yeah. our phone just appears to us, but it's made yes. up of all these things that were part of the world, that these Her things that were mined. That were mined, mined. yes. Yeah, and, and they yeah. were also mined using human bodies. Yes. Right? Yes. Like, so it's not just body of the earth that is inside of this, but they are, there are human bodies mm -hmm. that we're a part of processing and creating yeah. those elements. And so everything in our world is completely disembodied from where we might have hunted and tanned all of our own leather and made our mm -hmm. own clothes and mm -hmm. made our own shelters and cut down our own trees. And mm -hmm. we would have seen all the process. And so I think that speaks to this level of numbness that we're experiencing too. Because if you start thinking about that, about all of the processes that brought you, all the things that I'm touching right now, the chair I'm in, the computer I'm looking at, all of these, it becomes so overwhelming that you shut down. And again, yeah. this is an experience of being disembodied and, yeah. and disconnected and, and an understandable one at that because mm -hmm. it's just too big. It's too big for our little human brains to handle. And it's almost unwittingly made us an accomplice into this system that has yes. mined the earth and abused people in it. Yes. And we can't, it's not anyone's fault. It's not anyone's no. individual fault. And I think this is like no. where I, where I go with this, but of course we feel dis-ease around of our course. food system. Of course we do. Um, I have this theory, just a little theory, totally unproven, but like that a lot of the sort of restrictive diets, whether they be keto, whether they be like veganism, whatever they are, it's like a way to feel like I need to narrow the field. Mm -hmm. I need to create mm. some rules and structure because when I go to the grocery store, I see so much abundance and something isn't sitting right here with me. Mm -hmm. Mm. It's like cognitive dissonance. We would have, we would have, I'm not saying we all need to go be hunter gatherers tomorrow. Like we're in a different, <laughs> no. I'm about going forward. I'm not about going back, but I think me too. this is why like, it's been so profound to me to at least have some items in my food, in my fridge that are connected to the earth that I know the whole process of, because what it's illuminated for me is it's not just the lamb chop that came from the earth and that had a human toll and that took up resources and that blah, blah, blah. The carrot did too. The green onion did too. And everything is alive and embodied. And what I eat every day is the recently <laughs> deceased <laughs> bodies of all these, the plant and animal <laughs> kingdom, 
right? Like, so the egg that I raised myself plugged me into gratitude for store-bought eggs when I have to go buy them. And it, it gets us skin in the game. And I think that's very, that's powerful to our food system is, is a little bit more connection I think would, would be profound. Yes. I, and I, I think that you really hit on something that this narrowing that this desire, mm-hmm. and, and this is funny because I've been thinking a lot about how we can illustrate and invite people into complexity mm-hmm. because everything yes. is so so much more complex than yeah. we see. But you just highlighted for me that some of our reductionism is actually a way of sort of focusing in mm-hmm. a world that we are just drowning in. Yes. And coping with it. There's so much. Yes. And I think at the same time, whether it's keto or whether it's shopping locally or raising some of your own food, it gives you a sense of agency where you Mm -hmm. feel like you have none in, in this world that you need to participate in. And there are all of these processes and these complex consequences of every purchase that you make. Mm -hmm. And that that can become too heavy. And I, I do want to pull back and I do want to say again, I never want the onus to be yeah. on the individual. Like no. we cannot, we cannot. And so I do want to say this, we cannot it's fix. what Tyson wants us to feel. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and we cannot fix all of these. Pro- like these no. are not uh, to be internalized. Mm-hmm. I, I appreciate being able to see them. If I saw them all the time, I don't know if I could take a step forward. Yes. And, and there's so, nothing wrong with eating the disembodied carrot. All right. Like nothing although, wrong. Sometimes like I've been in a real moment where I'm just really stretched thin and I have been like, usually I would walk by the pre-sliced cabbage or whatever in the grocery store with this elitist air. Like I can slice my own cabbage, you know, like <laughs> Mm-hmm. I can't mm-hmm. believe mm-hmm. they're doing this. And I am right now in this moment, I'm like, I'm buying that pre-sliced. Give me the taco medley pre-sliced with the peppers. Yep. I'm exhausted. Like I need I'm tired. I need to be propped up a little right now. And there's absolutely nothing wrong. Like some of these things, nope. there's people that have arthritis in their hands. There's reasons for, and I, and I feel yes. so grateful on one hand for this abundance that we have, but I, I do see us as a kind of a culture struggling so much with it on the other hand. And so how can we, you know, create a lane or a connection back without doing anything radical that exhausts us further? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think in the same vein, you know, as a butcher, one of the most important things to me has always been to never shame people about how they like their meat. Mm. Um, This is something we preach a lot at Western Daughters. If you want to cook your steak medium well, Mm -hmm. then let's find a steak that you enjoy medium well. And I actually think that this is really important that we not shame food choices, Mm -hmm. that we create a sense of finding joy in what we eat. Um, And and that this extends, you know, this is kind of a funny, the butcher shop thing is a funny example, but I think this extends into it. Like there are times in our lives when we need convenience and I rail a lot against convenience, but I'm going to be honest with you this morning, I put a scoop of protein powder in my yogurt. Mm -hmm. I did Mm -hmm. it. I needed mm-hmm. a quick and easy breakfast and I needed it to be higher in protein. And yes, I raised all I of my it. own meat. Um, you're like, you're like protein powder. Like it's a secret. <laughs> because, because I think you get into some of these spaces yeah. where people are, are pushing an idea of 
puritanical, like yes. raising all of your own food, everything right. coming locally, never stepping outside of the box. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't mm-hmm. think that's, I don't that's think that's healthy. I don't think that's furthering prison. anything. It's and just so a, I just want to like the pendulum out. swing the other way. Yeah. I completely hear you. And I, and again, like, just like you said, none of us created the system that we have today. We did not no. do this. This is not our fault. This is you know, our power to combat as much as we feel able and willing. And here's the great thing too. It's actually brought me joy. It's been fun for me to connect to my food system and and source some things locally and raise some things myself. And I don't do a single thing Mm. that doesn't like I've, I've had this piece with myself. I'm not putting in a garden because right now the idea of that doesn't sound fun to me. It sounds like work. You just, you just hit on something so important. It should be fun to connect mm-hmm. with your food. Yes. It should yes. be fun. It yes. should give you joy. It should give mm-hmm. you pleasure. I mm-hmm. also did not grow a garden this year because it would not have given me a yeah. single <laughs> lick of pleasure. And I have no guilt about that decision. Yeah. yeah. Thank Heck you. Yeah. It should be fun. Mm-hmm. We cannot mm-hmm. suck the fun out of it. We cannot mm-hmm. suck the joy out of it. I don't want to do any more of this like self, was it flagellation? Like this self punishment for something that is not my fault. And also it's like, we all, we all can do what we can do. Right. And my thing is I love raising livestock. I'm doing what I can do Mm -hmm. already. Mm -hmm. And I'm also going to go to McDonald's. Damn. I love their fries. I am not going to legislate and restrict myself and try to, and fall into this pattern of purity culture around food when I push it away in other elements of my life. So this is so, thank you. I really like my protein powder in my yogurt in the morning. Um, I love it. I love it. Honestly, first you have to be nourished. Like that's the first thing that has to happen before you can go save the world in any other, you know, regard is you have to be fed and you have to be well. And it takes a village and agriculture will be some of our hills that we joyously die on. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah. other people will have other equally important mm-hmm. hills. It will take all of us. And I love, you know, there's so many amazing people there. Like their thing is wool. They're obsessed with fiber. And I've had several women come up to me lately. Like, I think I can help you make fiber, you know, this more like par- part of your real business model. Cause for us, we've been essentially using it as fertilizer because we don't have mm-hmm. a great source for it. And I just, people will say to me like, you need to make this out of your fiber. You need to make that. I'm like, no, you need to, I need help. I need <laughs> help. Doing my best. I need help. I'm doing my best. This is actually, this has become really important to me. I think one of the best things like in, I love all of the well-meaning advice and ideas that people give. And I think that's really important, right? And I think that's part of why I'm so open about our trials and tribulations Mm -hmm. with the butcher shop. And sometimes I think the best thing that you can give to a farmer or a rancher is not ideas or advice, (laughs) but to ask, can I help you? Do you have four hours of work that I could do? Could I help you fix a fence? Could I help you muck a barn? Could I help you, uh, whatever it is, could I help you put up hay? Like that question could change so much. I'm, I'm dying inside because the question that I always get is, can you give me a tour? Mm. 
And Mm -hmm. everyone is so amazing who asked me this. Everyone is so well-meaning. Everyone is so cool. I love you. Everybody who has ever asked this question. I love you. It's awesome. I love it. But I actually can't give you a tour. I'm doing as much as I can. And I need to spend that time with my husband who I see for about 20 minutes a day. And it would be, here's the thing. I would give you a tour, but if you could like kill some weeds first with a shovel, can you give me like two hours and then I'll give you two hours and I'll answer all your questions. (laughs) I need this to be a reciprocal relationship Uh because Uh I start to feel like I'm being mined like another ecosystem. Yes. Yes. Your, your time, your knowledge Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm time and knowledge that you don't have that's mm-hmm. coming out of right. margins that you also don't have right. and right. and just resources as a human that I yeah. am totally depleted of. Because I think the subtle assumption, like, would you say to an electrician, like, hey, can I just like come with you to work? Would you say like, no, because the assumption is like they're busy and they have high skill work and there's, there's risks mm-hmm. and dangers. And like, it's not just something you can seamlessly like come into. And I think the very subtle, totally subconscious belief under, Hey, can I just like, even if someone, people are offering to help me, they're often offering like, Hey, can I just like come feed bottle lambs? Or like, can I just like the kind of, everybody wants to feed a baby lamb as if the work that we do all day is like really easy. And I think the assumption is like, it's low skill work. And I'm not saying that anything that I'm doing is like that hard. It's, it's sometimes not, Mm -hmm. but I, I have spent 15 years now accumulating the the awareness of how to be around livestock, how to move in a low stress way, how to read things right before they happen, how to know exactly when I need to cut that bottle lamb off because that's actually too much milk. Like, And I can't that easily integrate somebody into my day. And I, if I'm going to offer my knowledge and I do want to, yes. I, I need help. I need to be, um, this has to be reciprocal. And then it's like, you're a gatekeeper. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man, this happens with butchery a lot too. People wanting to come in and just like, can you, can can I just stage for a couple of days and like learn how to butcher? And it's like, no, I'm running a business. Right. I I, I can't drop everything and teach you how to butcher. And it, and it's not that I want to gatekeep knowledge. Right. Right. But we have to remember that there is a long history of the way that skills were passed down mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that happened in reciprocity, that mm-hmm. happened in relationship. And I actually think that this is something like the transmission of skills is so important, whether that's teaching your child how to cook in the kitchen, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. even if it's just that sort of intergenerational transmission of family knowledge, or it's the transmission of farming or hunting or creating, you know, being a potter, being an artist, like whatever these things are, but they, they require time and they require investment from both parties. Mm -hmm. And I think you hit on something really important that I hadn't considered, which is how we view the labor of farmers. Yeah. And I do do minimize it. I said this before, like money flows to things that we value and if we valued mm-hmm. farmers, we would we would pay them more. Okay, I have Correct. two final questions for you. What do butchers want the public to know about their work? Well, we want you to know that I think that this is a crucial point in, you know, turning animals into food. Mm-hmm. That 
a lot of beauty, a lot of quality, a lot of deliciousness can be imparted at this point where we're taking a whole carcass and turning it into something that you recognize. But I think principally what I want you to know about our work is that Hopefully it's done in conjunction with farmers mm-hmm. and that you should probably eat more ground meat. <laughs> and, you know, I just did a two part episode with, um, with Lily, who's a dairy farmer. And when I think, when I think of certain vilified industries, it's easy to have this like cartoon of a dairy farmer in your mind. And so I encourage mm-hmm. people, like when you think of a dairy farmer, you know, think of Lily. And I, I really want, mm-hmm. you know, when people think of a butcher, I want them to think of you like don't have this caricature in your mind of what you think it must be to be in this trade. Like I mm-hmm. know many butchers now, they are all the most lovely humans. These, these strange associations that we give people that do the harvesting and the processing of our work. Like, yes. I think it's a real disservice and it's, it's a bit cruel. I would also say, you know, I, I, I don't run a slaughterhouse, but one of the things I'm really interested in is we wear t-shirts and swag from our favorite farmers, our favorite mm-hmm. ranchers, maybe even our favorite butcher shops. We never seek out our slaughterers. And so mm-hmm. as a butcher, mm-hmm. one thing I want you to know about my work is that the slaughterhouse's work is it's yeah. crucial and oh. that they should be celebrated and seen in the mm-hmm. same way that we think butchers are cool and farmers are cool. Yes. Yes. And just a semantic thing. Sometimes when I say butcher, I mean like the whole thing yep. because some places do both. Yep. Some people just yep. do pills. Yeah. Okay. Yes, this is uh, butchers, processors, slaughterers all get interchangeable sometimes. Okay. I have one last question for you. What do butchers want farmers to know about their work? Because there is, for folks outside the industry, there can be some like antipathy between these two groups. Farmers will often like blame the butcher for things. Yes. I think this is really important from a processor. So I want to define butcher in this situation, that a butcher would be a a kill and cut and wrap in this situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that farmers, oh, that it's hard, that overworked, underpaid, not able to pay employees what they deserve mm. to do the incredibly important work. And, you know, one thing I just want all of us, like all of us to know about one another is I think we're all doing our best. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. And, and that has to be, that has to be a part of it because, you know, we talked about this, we all want to point fingers and we're all frustrated with mm-hmm. consumers, with farmers, with processors. Mm-hmm. We're all doing our best. So how can we communicate amongst ourselves in order to build a better system? Oh, thank you for saying that. And all those things that butchers feel are things that farmers feel and like the overlap, you know, everybody's Mm -hmm. doing their best. Everybody's underpaid, exhausted, doing a lot of Mm -hmm. physical work, the work that is like really affecting their bodies. Yes. Oh, thank you for that. Okay. How can folks find you and follow up with you and follow your work? So I am most easily found on the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. You can find me on Instagram at Kate, K-A-T-E underscore Kavanaugh, K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H. Um, those are the two best places. I'll, I'll, mm-hmm. send you, I'll send you links to my Yeah, we'll put everything in the show notes. Stuff other stuff. I really, I really highly recommend your podcast. Um, I've been on it. I, I, I like savor your interviews. 
Um, it's long form, which I love. I think we need, I'm, my whole thing is like I'm anti-hot take and you do that so beautifully. Like it's no hot yeah, takes, no hot takes in this zone. <laughs> no hot takes, no just talking long points. Takes. Yeah. No talking points, just long, just long form. And, uh, this was, this was such a pleasure. You asked me some questions I've never been asked, which is really special. Yes. And I listened to a bunch just... of your interviews. I know that I did some repeats, but I did want to like tell your story in full. So that's okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining me today on Choose Wisely. You can stay in touch with Kate at the links in the show notes. I have a really fun episode with her on her podcast, the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. She's had a lot of really great guests on there. I urge you to check it out. And I hope your next meal is delicious and your next conversation is nuanced. You can rate and review Choose Wisely. It just takes 10 seconds and we so, so, so appreciate when you do. It helps others find us. Stay in touch with us on Instagram at Choose Wisely Podcast, on Twitter at Choose Wisely Pod. I tweet our favorite quotes from the episode occasionally. And on Patreon at Choose Wisely Podcast, I would so welcome you to become a regenerator supporting our independent podcast over there. And you can also email us at choosewiselypodcast at gmail.com. Cheers. <laughs>